Hey, this is Barbara Corcoran, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. Everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. But first... Mark Lurie is no ordinary entrepreneur. He's an e-commerce entrepreneur extraordinaire. Walmart bought his company, Jet.com, for over three, listen to this, billion, as in B, billion dollars. That was in 2016. But wait, there's more. Even before founding Jet.com, Mark also created Quitsy, the parent company of Wag.com, Diapers.com, Soap.com, which he sold to Amazon before that last big deal for $550 million in 2011 after just six, as an SIX, years in business. How the heck do you build something in six years that's worth over $550 million? I don't get it. Help me out with that as a starter. Yeah, no, I think it's important to build a really strong culture and foundation and hire great people and empower them and let them run. There's no way to move that fast when you're finding yourself having to do all the details yourself. So I think it's really thinking big from the outset is what's key. So you're saying not only thinking big, but you're also saying delegation was key. Yeah, stru- the structure people. it so that you can hire people and empower them. But how do you do that? Again, I have to repeat, in six years, that's the part that baffles me. I get Legit that. was two years. No way. Yeah. Okay, we have to end this right here. I'm too much <laughs> in shock and I'm too envious, I swear to God. <laughs> yeah, really, we're going to end it right now. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm not. Okay, but let's just go back to the first business you did in six years. How do you do okay. that? Build an empire that quickly with the right people, find the talent, motivate them, get everybody where you want them, and actually reach a finish line so that your business is worth that kind of money. I still find that almost we have to impossible raise cap- to believe. We have to raise enough capital to be yeah. able to put that to work. So I think that would be first is raising the capital. And that's exactly what people. you did, Mark. You went out and raised the capital first, and then you hired the people. Yeah, pretty much. So why would someone hand you over that kind of cash when you are only describing it with your mouth and probably a few charts and everything and that they actually buy in and believe you? Well, the first business, Diapers.com, Quidsy, we definitely bootstrapped to start out and we had good traction. Customers loved the site. Revenue was growing. And then we did a round and then we hired the team. So it was a little different than Jet. So you had Jet, a report card or a proof ground of yeah. some sort. Yeah. Jet, we raised... $55 million seed round with just a deck. That was a different story. That was based on, you know, the success of we had had before. Success. Yeah. yeah, I get that. I could picture you rounding a bunch of guys who yeah. put a lot of money on the table then. It's just in the beginning part, I, I find that you must be a hell of a salesman. Yeah. Are you? I'm okay. Yeah. You strike me as someone who's likable, plausible, but I wouldn't have said meeting you when I first met you and meeting you again today that you walk in and you say, wow, this guy can sell. Yeah. That's not my impression of you. Well, sales, it depends on what you're selling. I think when you're selling to venture investors and intelligent people with, that want to give you their money, it's important to talk about and share the big vision and mm-hmm. then very methodically how you're going to execute a plan to achieve it. Mm-hmm. So numbers come into play, being good with numbers and being really clear about milestones and what you need to do to get there. Sales is not like you might typically think, like selling a used car to somebody and, and trying yeah, to pull yeah. one over I'm on sure them. It's actually, it's actually utilizing facts and 
making a, a case that's plausible. Yeah, but the common ground there is in each situation you have to be persuasive. So you persuade with the use of numbers? Is that your secret yeah. sauce? Yeah, numbers. It's the combination of, of the big vision and numbers. It's making people believe that there's a really big opportunity here. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people just shoot you know, a little bit too low mm-hmm. and it's just not as exciting for investors. So make sure you paint a really big, bold vision, mm-hmm. get people excited about the vision, have them start questioning. Yeah, we agree that's a big, bold vision. That would be amazing, but how are you going to do that? And then mm-hmm. being really clear and articulate about all the steps it would take to get there. And then surely people must challenge many of those steps along the way. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You have to be, so you have to be you... really buttoned up and know the answers to all the questions. You have to know going in, all the things that they might ask or question and have a good response to it. Is that a, like a collaborative important. process or you had the vision, you thought, okay, these are going to be the milestones I see it in my mind's eye and this is what the questions are going to be. Was that a you only or is that you have a team of smart guys or gals together and say, hey, listen, how do we sell this? What are going to be the milestones? What are they going to ask? Do you practice that kind of thing and get other people's input? Yeah, definitely get other people's input and discuss it together as a team, but at the end of the day, the questions are going to be directed toward to me. You. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I spend so much time thinking about all the possible questions and how the presentation may go mm. so that I'm prepared. I think preparation is really important mm-hmm. going into those venture meetings. I would think preparation is important in anything you are wildly successful yeah. in. Yeah. yeah, I just didn't think it leaned as heavily on the numbers. I really thought it leaned more in the personality, but you don't agree. You definitely want to give investors confidence that you could be a good steward of capital, that you can hire great people and that you can do what you say. So I mm-hmm. think that's another thing. Investors early on, they're definitely cautious, but if you start to deliver on what you said you would. Initially. Initially. But you already the have that money then. Up. Yeah. yeah, but there's always a time where, I don't know, I, I found when you kind of start out, investors are a little bit more skeptical mm-hmm. and you basically pitch them and say, hey, here's what we're going to do. And then a year later, you come back to them and say, I know you weren't willing to invest back Mm. then. We shared this plan Mm. with you. We said we were going to do X, Y, and Z. We actually did that and more. Mm -hmm. And now we think we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And And now they're all believers. Yeah, then they're like, huh. It's rare that people do what they say and even more rare that people beat what they said. So I think anybody thinking about putting together a plan, it's really important that you set expectations Mm -hmm. to a place where you can over deliver Mm -hmm. because that becomes your currency going forward. Of course. And that's exactly what you did initially. And it's never about the existing round. If you optimize to try and raise for this round, you're missing the big picture. You Mm. always need to optimize and think about future rounds, even when you're Mm. So you're really working backwards. Yeah, you're working backwards. What about the very first guy who said, hey, I get it. I'm giving you my money. Is that the hardest piece of the sale? The very first person in? Who they are, does that make a difference? Because people like to follow people they respect. Yeah. I mean, it always helps if you had somebody that was a, a name person to come in. It's always much easier to raise money off the back of that. Did that happen But that to doesn't you? always happen. didn't happen to me. I started a business with, that I didn't need capital for. But then the first business I needed capital for, I was in banking for seven years. Mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur as a kid. I did every entrepreneurial business you could imagine. <laughs> Four years old, my grandma used to always ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always just say, I want to be a farmer. And she's like, a farmer, really? I said, yeah, because they grow stuff from nothing. Ah, and, great answer. And that was always as a kid. I didn't know why. I was only four years old, but I wanted it to be a farmer and I wanted to grow stuff from nothing and I ultimately did. But when I graduated college, 
there wasn't this startup scene or mm, it wasn't easy to go raise money and do a startup. It was, mm-hmm. you go work for a consulting firm or a bank or mm. a corporation or something. And I, I went to work for a bank and I was there for seven years doing quite well, making a lot of money, but something was missing. I just knew that this wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And at that time, seven years in, it was the late nineties of 2000. Mm. And, and uh, that was, yeah, that was right, <laughs> right mm. before the whole thing burst. What, are you a fool? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got out with the skin so, on your back. Right? So I literally just walked into my boss's office and said, hey, I'm going to quit and be an entrepreneur. Wow. And he laughed at me and thought, yeah, okay, well, you just had a kid and you're making all this money. You can't, what's your business? Why wouldn't he take you seriously? You were working for him. He saw you were a performer. Yeah. Because his headset wasn't there. Is that what it was? Yeah, it was just, like another country? I had just had a baby and oh. I was making a ton of money, doing really well. And I didn't have a business idea. And he said, you're just going to quit and become an entrepreneur and start something? Like, you must have a great idea. I said, not yet. I need to, like, step out to really think about what I want to do. But I know I want to start something. And he said, all right, well, you're a smart guy. And I know you're not crazy. But if you're really going to do this, can I be your first investor? you got to be kidding yeah. without even an idea in yeah. your hand? Yeah. Well, he was I, crazy, too. Two crazy yeah, people. Yeah, it, it was a small investment. I think it was, like, 25 grand or 50 grand, something like that. What a vote of conference. But I didn't know anybody with money. So at that point, Jerry Goldstein, who was my boss there at Sandwell, he made the investment and then introduced me to two of his friends. Wow. From there, they introduced me to friends. I did about 120 investor pitches to wow. angel investors, didn't raise any venture capital, raised $5 million in basically sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 chunks kind of mm. on average, something mm-hmm. like that. Substantial um, then, even yeah. by that measuring stick, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's something that I hear constantly from the people calling in. They say, how do I leave what I have when I have nothing in hand? And honestly, I usually, I guess, based on what you just said, give them bad advice. I say, get something of where you want to go before you leave where you're going. Kind of the advice my mother told me, don't start your own business, get a resume again. And I ignored her, thank God. Yeah. But uh, what do you say to people like that? You think that's a good doctrine for people or you're an unusual human being? And for you, it's easy to jump off with a with a new child and I, uh, boom. I know come from a little bit different school of thought on Mm -hmm. that where I think people don't know what they're capable of doing until they're pressed up against the wall. wall. Mm -hmm. And by putting yourself in that position, you're able to find the best that you've got. I think Mm -hmm. it's really hard to really go all in when you've got a safety net. Absolutely. It's really tough. And so when I made that leap, my back was certainly against the wall. I had no salary, had a new baby. I gave it everything I possibly because could. you had to I succeed. I had to. had to succeed. There was no option. Failure mm. wasn't an option. I had also put in every dollar of savings that I made in banking into the business oh, to did? further make it so that I had no way no out. No fallback. No yeah. fallback. Mm. I think people are capable of doing so much more than they think they are. And don't know until the back's against the wall. And don't know until the against the wall. I mean, you can do mm. things that, looking back, I've done things that I just never thought were possible. Because mm-hmm. you had no choice. You had no choice. It's like putting a gun to your own head, right? That's what it, no, if, yeah. I say that all the time. It's, you put yourself in a life or death situation. Mm. If you really want to ensure success, do mm. that. Because mm-hmm. if death is the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get, get motivated, right? Yeah, you get motivated get. real fast. <laughs> <laughs> My God. What about uh, the privileged kids out there? I often see a lot of privileged kids on Shark Tank pitching like crazy. And I don't trust them because I come from nothing. And I think, it's too comfortable for them to fail, and so I mistrusted. Do you think that's a fair shake for kids of privilege who definitely have a fallback position called mom and dad or equity that they already have or trust funds? What do you think yeah, about no, that? No, I think there's a valid point there. I am also equally 
you know, leery of that. They could be privileged, but they need to put themselves in a position where they need to make it work and they need to give everything they've got. If Mm. there's a fallback or an easy way out, people will take it. It's just human nature, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a fallback. Or at least they don't uh, put the pedal to the metal in the same ferocious way as they would if they had no. Exactly. A hundred hours a week, you know, giving up your social life and things like that doesn't happen when you come from a place of So you don't invest in any privileged kids when they have a pitch yourself as an investor? No. I mean, I I don't think growing up with money necessarily means- Ruins you. Ruins you. (laughs) But there has to be some level of hunger there. Having to- prove themselves where you know that there's no way they're going to let this fail. Like they can't let it fail. That's probably the biggest determining factor that I look at as, as an investor mm-hmm. is in the founder and their commitment. First of all, how big is and, and lofty is the vision and then how committed are they? Mm-hmm. If you have those two things, you're 80, 90% of the way there. Wholeheartedly. You yeah. just have to get a little time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You sound like you'd be a great student in school, but I suspect you were not. I was not. I didn't like school at all. I was Mm -hmm. more a doer. You know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Mm -hmm. Was that a big deal to your family? They were like, huh, who cares? I guess it was a big thing. Yeah. You know, I was sophomore in high school was the first time I realized you had to actually apply to get into college. Yeah, it's a good start. (laughs) So I was like, oh, you have to actually get good grades and you have to apply because a friend in the hall said, I'll never forget this, said, you know, hey, what do you think about college? I said, oh, I'm going to go to Harvard. And they said, Harvard? You, you don't have the grades. You can't get in Harvard. I'm like, what do you mean? Don't you just apply? Like, fill out an application, apply and go, pay? <laughs> that was an eye-opening. That was a lack of exposure. Yeah, uh, if you were year. born of a different family, you would have known those rules of the road. So yeah, speak, no, right? no. And I have two daughters and, you know, they knew everything you know, starting in seventh grade <laughs> and eighth and you're there. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you realize how different it is. For so were you thrilled when you graduated from Harvard? <laughs> Guess it didn't happen, right? No, it didn't. But did you get serious Fun. about your grades? Were you able to will your way to start paying attention to your grades, or you just were a lousy student? I, def- I definitely started to a little bit more, like junior year. And mm-hmm. That was too late by then. Mm-hmm. But I also just didn't like having to like memorize stuff. That mm. was just killed me. Because you were not good at it, or because you found it boring, or both, probably? Boring. Not good at it. I'm an inventor, and so mm-hmm. like in school, it'd always be like thinking about ways to do this problem differently or you or, mean in the classroom yeah, in the or classroom. with your peer group no like in the, hey yeah, let's the classroom. do this let's do that no and 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 that too but mm-hmm. in the classroom as well mm-hmm. like you know word problems and things in math never wanting to do and use the formulas they tell you in science never you know, trying to invent is or another way to solve this is another type of yeah formula. you don't get an a for that no you know you learn how to think which mm. is you think you learn how to think in school really no no i oh, i yeah. did because i didn't memorize anything and i didn't yeah. do what the teachers told me to do. So you were on your own spend page. my time thinking. Yeah. yeah. And even today, I, I don't really read hardly anything. I much prefer thinking. Mm-hmm. I find it really hard to invent, create something from scratch when you're constantly reading because you're just seeing someone else's point of view. It's hard to, to sort of break out and see a new path. So I like to absorb, talk to people, read little snippets here and there, to try and connect the dots, but then spend hours every day just thinking about it, how everything connects. Do you value Mark information for information's sake, or must it be something that you have to use in your actual life? I always feel yeah. there's two types of learners. They like to know this, like to know that. And no, there's other like people that. that just pay attention to what they can actually use. Yeah, I think I'm more the latter. I would think yeah, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't feel like I need to know everything that's going on. How do you know how to ferret out what's important, what's not in a situation, make a decision, and move on? That's the toughest question. 
But is it based on the people? Is it based on the information that you've culled? Is it based on just a gut in your stomach, based on nothing at all, but your gut says, why not? Or do this or go left? How does that happen, that decision-making process? I think it always starts for me. Every time I get into that situation, I'm always thinking where the puck's going 5, 10, 20 years into the future and then working backwards. Mm -hmm. But how would you know even to think about wanting to shoot a puck there? And how would you know uh, to have any confidence to think that's where it's going? Yeah. I mean, understanding the trends in technology and having that sort of macro view of understanding over the last 10, 20 years where technology needs industry has come from and is going. Where your new business would fit in in that larger picture. Yeah, exactly. That's the reasoning you use? Yeah. And you just have to take a little bit of a leap. Some things are pretty straightforward, like autonomous vehicles. They've been working on autonomous vehicles forever, forever the mm-hmm. last 10, 20 years. I mean, for a long time. But it's now at a point where in the next 10, it will be a real thing. So that's something you would say, I believe in, and this model is the one that's going to work, and this is what I'm betting on? Or is this something you no, say, that's and that's just, what I'm going to do? that's just an input, though, to thinking about where the future is going to go. So what does that mean if autonomous vehicles become a thing? Mm. Does that mean that people commute further because now they don't have to drive and they have more time? If they commute further... Does real estate prices further from cities go up at a more exponential rate? Connecting the dots in those kinds of ways. Well, guess what? You just really impressed me. I would never think of either of those two things. I would say it must be nice and would I trust the fake driver? That's about as far (laughs) as I would be thinking. Using that as a beautiful example, how would it apply to you and what business you might start or how you would cash in on that in the future or make a fortune? What would happen then? Yeah, well, it's funny. I I just made an investment because I think Autonomous vehicles are, are a little bit ahead of eVTOL, so the electric vertical mm-hmm. take the flying, basically personal cars sort of thing. That segment of the market is kind of where autonomous cars were five or ten years ago. Really? And I do think that all this autonomous technology will be used to be able to fly you 30 to 50 miles for urban mobility, a very mm. cost-effective, very safe way. Mm. And I think that's where the sort of next step change is going to come from in, in transportation. And so I just invested in an eVTOL company mm. based and, on that. And can I ask you, when you're thinking of making that investment, how sure are you about your vision? Do you say, I know it's going to go here? It's like, it's got a good shot. What does it take for you to go in that direction? Put your money down. I'm pretty confident that that will be a thing in the future. The mm-hmm. timeline is uncertain. So mm-hmm. that's always the thing. You can get ahead of yourself and you can have a great idea and just have the market timed wrong Mm -hmm. and lose a lot of money. So the timing's always Mm -hmm. an unknown element. But I think it comes down to what I said before. It's all based on the founder, Mm -hmm. their commitment. In this particular case, this founder is as committed as any founder I've ever met before. With a great track record walking in on some of the business? Or this is his first baby and this is what he wholeheartedly believes in? No, two guys. They started a business before and sold it successfully. So they have a track record. But hunger and more now than even before that business, the other mm-hmm. business they started. So mm-hmm. that's what I look for. And uh, I think it's the right industry. The timing is uncertain, but it will happen. And then you have the, the founders to execute it. So so you're looking for in, in a partner or an investment based on the pure personality of the individual, how much passion they have? Or I, am I oversimplifying that? Yeah, I don't think people should over complicate it. Sometimes investors, they want to get into the weeds and all the specific unit economics and things. Sounds like you're very good at explaining that, though. You did that with your investors. As an investor, I think picking the right industry, the right time, big vision, and then great founders that are committed to do whatever it takes to see that vision through. Mm -hmm. If you give me that, give them capital, Mm -hmm. 
hire great people. And then, okay, well, why don't you give me 1% of you invest in, because I don't have those abilities you just cited, and I'm really annoyed at myself. <laughs> so whatever you invest in, for every 10 bucks you put in, I'm going to put 10 cents. <laughs> no, really, but I'm sure it will amount to a lot. And I think I would have made really smart investments. What do you say? All right, sure. Can I get a little bonus for even thinking of this great scam? Wow. We can talk about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I doubt whether I will. I'll chicken out. <laughs> I have confidence in myself more than the next guy somehow. I mean, I'd like to pick my own stuff. So how much does your attitude play in your success? Attitude, attitude, attitude. Yeah. Everybody talks about it. When it comes to core values, that is like the most important thing that I've subscribed to when starting a company. I think the culture and the set of core values is what defines the company and whether or not the company will be successful. I can't So your imagine. first business, what were your core values and did you know that you started, these are our values and make it known? Well, I learned some lessons. So when I first started, we had a list of 10 values mm-hmm. and I realized that- Seems like a crazy list, place to start though, right? Yeah, that list looked like the list that any company could have. And it sort of occurred to me that if you really want to call the values core, you should just pick a few, not more than three. I would think, yeah. That's sort of, that sort of defined the company in a way that allows you to live the values in a way that no other company can say because you've narrowed it down to three. Also for just your employees to remember them, for yeah. God's sakes. And, and with Jet, and people did, it's trust, transparency, and fairness. Mm. So the thinking was it's all, all those three values working together, I think is incredibly empowering for people. So if you give people all the information and you're transparent with them and you trust them and you create a fair, inclusive work environment where they feel safe to bring their best self to work. If you hire people that are self-motivated and you bring them into that environment, they feel incredibly empowered and and you get the best that they've got. That's all you could ask. If you could hire great people and get the very best they've got. It's enough. It's enough. And a lot of times you can hire great people, but you can't get the best they've got Mm -hmm. or you can't hire great people. Like Mm. if you can do both, then you've got something special. Well, also, if you could communicate your values to them, they take them as their own. How do you communicate, for example, trust? One of our core yeah. values here is, is trust. And let me tell you why you should believe in it or why we all believe in it and why it's good for yeah. you. How do you so sell So this that? is something that, you know, I think it's important to distinguish core values of the company, that the company lives versus traits you look for in the people that you hire. Mm. And I'll just separate that for a second. In yeah, terms of the, the values, the company has to be prepared to live those values and do things that other companies wouldn't do that didn't have those values. So, for example, on transparency, we made all of the compensation of every employee transparent to everyone. So everyone in the company knows what everyone else is making. Yeah. Well, didn't you have complaints? No, or so, justification for why so-and-so is making more than me in a similar position? No, I know. You, you would think that, but actually it, it solves a lot of problems that people have with feeling like things not fair, mm. feeling like a distrust because you think that you brought in somebody doing the same job as me making more money. And a lot mm. of times they're male at the expense of female or minorities. And so we basically set up a compensation system that not only transparent, which is that value, but also fair, which is the other value, so that everybody at the same level in the company makes the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. So if you're a director, whether you're in HR, finance, marketing, technology, you make the same amount well, of money. What do you say to the exceptional young person that comes in is so much better than everybody else at that same level, and he thinks he deserves what you, It's not a formula for losing your best talent? No, I've found it, it's the opposite, mm. because- you set the bar really high. You bring in great talent at that level. And if somebody is exceptional and they're doing better than their peer group, they'll get promoted into the next level. So you have uh-huh. to be prepared to move people quickly through the levels, especially when they're young. Mm. Superstars at a young age 
typically don't move up fast enough through organizations, yes, especially right. big companies. And mm -hmm. so recognizing that, and if you're using this fairness principle, it's not based on years of experience. It's based on where is it most fair for you to fit? And yes. so we would just have a people on the team look mm -hmm. at each individual and say, is this their peer group or should they be moved up mm -hmm. into the next group? Mm -hmm. And anybody that we look to hire in, we basically have a diverse interview panel and everyone agrees this person director level, that's their peer group. Then we make the offer and say, everybody that's a director, go on LinkedIn, look them all up. They're all making mm. 150,000 a year. That's mm. what the salary is. And like, yeah, well, I'm making 200. I'm like, well, sorry, you're getting overpaid because here's the market, wow. you know, all these great people. And they'll come and work for you. I'd say with rare exceptions, people will, once they believe it's fair and that those people in their group is really their peer set and they're really smart, talented people. They know they'll go farther with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you said the three values were trust, transparency, and fairness. Is that how yeah. you put it? I thought to myself, well, I agree with trust and fairness, but not transparency. And you just converted my thinking. Yeah. And now I'm even thinking if your only value is transparency, you don't have to worry about the trust and fair. That takes care of all three, right? Yeah. Transparency is a big one. It takes a set of you balls also, on, to, on trust, to for example. Yeah. People sign non-competes or non-solicit agreements when they come into the company. People Perfect. say, well, that's crazy. But you trust them. You trust them. Mm. And it's funny, that handshake means more than a piece of paper. Absolutely. If somebody signs a piece of paper, all they're doing is reading the paper when they leave and saying, oh, it looks like I can do this. Mm. With a handshake, it's a little bit more based on- Of course. You know. You know, years ago, I was making the biggest real estate deal when I was a young broker. My company survival depended on if I got paid or not. And I said, I'll send you a contract to this big developer named Bernie Mendick one of the two largest developers in town. And he said, you don't need an agreement. Here's my handshake. Check me out. Yeah. And I just decided to trust him. Well, maybe I realized he wasn't going to sign anything anyway. <laughs> and before I even billed him, he was paying commissions to me for two years. Never had to ask for a thing. Remarkable. I learned a great lesson from him. Yeah. Yeah. What do Those you say is your always? Yeah. It's about people always on everything. Yeah. I find that trusting people brings out their best. Yeah. Self. Until you can't trust them. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? Somebody once told me this, and I think it's true. You know you're living your values when they're hard to live. And wow. so like if transparency is your value and one time you get stung, mm. that comes with the territory. But you have to remind yourself of the incredible value that you get from all the times that you've lived the value and weren't stung. So wow. I, I just accept that I will be stung by living values yeah, and just accept it as that's a, you know. Now how of, do you size up an employee or better than that? What do you think is the most important trait in a great employee? I have this uh, term called SPOTIC. basically stands for smart, passionate, optimistic, tenacious, adaptable, kind, and empathetic. That's a perfect person. Those are the traits that I look for. Early in my career, I spent a lot of time focused on the resume and asking more traditional interview questions, mm -hmm. biggest challenge, success, failure. What I found is the most important thing to get to the bottom of an interview is really cultural value fit and mm. do they exhibit these spotic traits because you can look at a resume and know what their experience is what jobs they've done but that's the real differentiator of the is the value set and the kind of people you're hiring so i spent all interview on that now and but how do you ask those questions they, they would yeah. sound fairly personal are you allowed to do that with a large corporation with the personnel department or, yeah i don't actually yeah. ask necessarily specifically like are you optimistic what I do is I try and ask people questions that get them with no to rehearsed answers up. to open up. So well, one sir. of my favorite questions that I like to ask, for example, is what's the minimum amount of money you would take to walk backwards everywhere you go for a week? 
can't tell anybody why you're doing it. So if somebody asks you, just say, sorry, I can't tell you. (laughs) And what's the minimum amount of money? Not the most. It's not a negotiation. Really, honestly, the minimum amount that you would take. I would ask right away, which city? In New York, I'd want a lot more. Wherever you currently work, you have to go to work. You have to go out on weekends. You can't not do anything. You just have to live your life and you can't tell anybody why you do and you do it for a week. And it's amazing when you get into a little bit of a discussion with somebody on that, how you start to learn so much about well, what- give me an example, because I would think you were totally nuts asking me that question. I guess I'd have to give it some thought if you pushed it. Yeah, there's no right answer, but I find- but what do you call from that about that individual? What if I said to you, my answer on that in yeah. New York City for a whole week yeah. would have to be probably 500000 because I would think that I could get hurt easily. Yeah. It would be fun. I'd like it yeah. for two days. Let's say, let's say take safety out. Assume okay. you, you, oh, it's safely? just the embarrassment factor. It was just fun. I'd sign right up for it. What do you call from like that answer that I would give you or someone who would say, oh, God, you have to pay me a ton. What do you learn about that individual? Some people are much more concerned about what other people think. So you know, how am I going to explain this when somebody asks me why you're working? That's not who you want to So you don't want to hire that person. Or do that alone mm-hmm. is just one data point. So it's really, I'm looking at the mosaic of all the different pieces and how they fit together to try to get a really clear picture of someone's personality, whether they would be a good, be a good fit. And what I of guess. those initials yeah. is the most important piece that you would not negotiate on yourself as an employer? Say, oh, forget it. If they're not measuring up on that, I don't want them. If I had to pick one there, mm-hmm. it's tough between empathy and optimism. It'd be tough picking from one of those two. Joined at the hip, I agree. I think people that see the glass is half full and think, yes, this can be done and are willing to do what it takes. Work with the next guy to do it and understand that position. But then at the same point, empathy, I think, is so important, you know, and just an organization for people. If you're going to work with people. Work with people, yeah. Yeah. Would you say that your best employees always have those two values and spades? Yep, absolutely. I also like to ask people, if you could only be known to be one of these two things, what would you be? You could be known as being very smart, but not that kind, or very kind, but not that smart. Oh, gosh. You can only pick one of the two. And it's interesting. Some people, it's a no-brainer. They just go right to, I can't be thought of as not being kind. I would think most people would have that answer. No? Yeah, but probably 30 40% will pick smart and not kind. Would you hire that person? It'd be really hard. They would have to check a lot of the boxes. I, yeah, yeah. Really, and maybe be in a specialty in your firm, like a super analytic position. Yeah, I just never talks to people or something. It puts up a huge roadblock for me. So, if somebody yeah. says that they'd rather be known as being smart and not kind, like mm. that, that's tough. That's not who that's you want to sit next to, yeah. right? But 30 to 40% of people will, will pick the smart. So, you know, they're good people that certainly do it, but it's just you have to have some way to filter out, right? Mm-hmm. So. Okay, I have another question because it bugs me on Shark Tank. I think you're the right guy to answer it. When I get a young entrepreneur and it's on their second or third business particularly, and it normally always is, but let's just say they're a young entrepreneur, had a business, they had a burn rate, they trash that cash on somebody. That's always a red warning sign. But whenever people on Shark Tank start talking about exit strategy, my exit strategy is this, my timeline is this. Do you believe- Out. Out. Thank you. Come over here. Let me kiss you. Out. I feel intolerant when they do it. I think, forget it. I'm thinking I'm being too nasty. It's missionary versus mercenary. It's really simple. Mm. It's like, have you bought into the mission and are you committed to see the mission through? This Mm. goes back to the commitment. You can't be committed to just making money. You have to be committed to a mission and something bigger than yourself. Because if you are, 
you'll be able to attract employees that are missionary. They'll follow you and you'll be willing to go further. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes down to more mercenary where it's about making a buck and it's, then you start talking about exit. And when you start going down that path, I think you hire and and recruit the wrong type of individuals. You don't build a sustainable culture and team. No, I I would stay far away from that. Okay, good. I'm going to do without conscience. I just thought I was a mean son of a gun. No. Kevin loves those deal. What exactly is your exit strategy? No. Okay. The exit will happen naturally. If you're doing a really good job, other companies will be interested. You'll get offers. Worst case, you just continue to build a successful business. Do you have plans to start another new business or two or three or four? No plans today, but I definitely am an entrepreneur. I have the bug and mm-hmm. I'm still young. So, mm-hmm. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming in. Thank you for having me. It was Come fun. Come on, it was better than having yeah. you. I've learned so much. It was like a brain transplant. I'm going to walk out of this room today, and I'm going to be <laughs> twice as smart. No, I'm going to sound. I'm going to be able to do it. I, you know. But uh, you must be wonderful to work for. It must be a blast from start to finish. Thank you. I take a lot of pride in that. But you didn't have an exit strategy. I just have to ask that again. You personally didn't have an exit strategy. You exited both high-flying, short periods of time. You never for a minute thought, what could I sell this sucker for if we do it right? No. Unbelievable. Never. Until you get to the point where it You're, becomes a thing. But yeah. before that, no. You're just having fun no. building a business. Yeah. Big vision and you want to go after it. Sold me, baby. Smart <laughs> guy. <laughs> Thanks very much. All right, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And now a few things about my wonderful sponsor, On Deck Business Loans. Now let's get back to the show. Good morning, Barbara. My name is Kim, and I'm calling from very cold um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. My husband and I founded a company, which is an online event planning platform for quinceañeras and Hispanic weddings. It's kind of grown like wildfire over the past two years. We went from an idea to over 900,000 users last year alone. Our focus has been on user growth and retention, obviously because the way we're making money is off of vendor and advertising and product sales. With that, it's been hard to raise institutional money. Even though we have raised money over the last two years, it's been hard to get a VC to bite because of our focus on user growth and acquisition first, then monetization second. This year we are just now starting to monetize the platform and been hitting all of our goals, which is great. But I just would love to hear your thoughts on that and maybe companies that you've worked with in the past, what they've done to really jump over that hurdle. Thank you so much. You're on with me. You're on with Mark Lurie here. It's your double lucky day here, Kim. I know. I don't know what I did to deserve such an honor. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so confident that Mark is going to have the perfect answer to your question. I'm going to throw the mic to him because this is his ballywick. It's a sweet spot. He knows it better probably than anyone else I could have brought in to answer this question. Go ahead, Mark. What do you think? Hi, Kim. Hi. First off, congratulations, 900,000 users over the last couple of years. That's really impressive growth. Oh, thank you. I would say that if you've got venture capital firms that aren't biting, they're probably the wrong firm. I think your focus on user retention and growth is the right strategy. The monetization, I think, is important, but it's less important in aggregate. It's more important that you show that your users are are growing, that they've got a great experience, the net promoter score is high, and then that you can and will be able to monetize it in time. And I think it's important to to create and spend a lot of time on your unit economics model. So exactly when you get a customer in, on average, how long do they stay? How much do they engage in the platform? 
Do they come back and try and build that sort of lifetime revenue model of a customer and then show some data points with the times that you have been able to monetize what at scale that monetization of that lifetime value would be in terms of lifetime profit. And if that lifetime profit is call it at least three and a half times what your cost to bring in a new buyer is. And I think you have a really strong case for a long-term economically viable model and you should be able to raise a significant venture capital off the back of that. It needs to be done really well. Right. So I guess just to piggyback off that, so I'm a female founder pitching a startup that is focused on the Hispanic community, but I'm based in the heart of the Midwest. Our investors, the majority of them are located here, and they just don't have connections to the type of VCs that you're mentioning. So how would one start those relationships or get in front of those, the correct you know, investors? Have you come up with a list of early stage venture capital firms, maybe ones that focus even on female founders? Yeah. Kirsten I have. Green at Forerunner comes to mind, female founders fund, firms like that. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, you know, sent the emails to info at, but really haven't got much of a response there. How would you get past info app? It always disempowers yeah. when you feel like you have a wall between you and who you're trying to actually get to meet. How do you make an end run and get past that obstacle? It's an obstacle for yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, and people do this with me, so I, I assume this is a good strategy, is to find other entrepreneurs out there that have raised venture capital before. Mm-hmm. They've typically, you know, I'm sure, pitched many VCs if they raise venture capital because you're usually not just one for one, and then ask them to make an intro. People do that with me all the time. They'll say, oh, hey, Mark, we know you've raised a lot of venture capital. You must know some people. Mm. Can I have a few minutes of your time? Can I meet? Can Mm. I grab a coffee? That sort of thing. And I'm sure the hit rate is not going to be great, but it's going to be much better than going after a venture capital info at. Kim, are you you active outside your offices? And and are you meeting other people like that? You have access? Oh, yes. I mean, I fly all over the country. I'm in New York often. I mean, I'm in California in the Bay Area multiple times a year. I mean, I just was in Houston. I mean, I'm all over the country. I'm doing what I need to do to succeed with this company. The beautiful thing about our business is that the company can be based in the Midwest. We don't have to be on one of the coasts or in the South. It's actually, you know, amazing as far as the cost of living, you know, to be able to have, you know, we have a team of 11. And I don't know if I could say that if I was in a big city, but definitely the connections. I just don't have them. And it's been hard. So, so, hey, Mark, I heard you have some connections. Would you like to meet up for coffee? (laughs) (laughs) If you're in the New York area, definitely. I feel like I always am because I'm where I need to be, you know, to grow the company. I'd be happy to meet with you. I love talking to entrepreneurs, especially ones that haven't yet raised significant venture capital. Why? Because you want to be greedy? No, not to invest. I started this thing called the Startup Stand-Up on LinkedIn, where Mm -hmm. I basically speak with female founders to try and help them raise capital. I think there's an inequity Mm, in the market and and just helping, you know, do what I can to, to try and help close the gap. So mm. I, I really enjoy it. I think I could give some good advice. Uh, Kim, I have one last question. We'll let you go. Uh, why are you in such a rush to raise the institutional money in the first place? Well, because, I mean, we've been focused on user growth and retention this past two years. And so we're burning capital doing that. A strategic investor came along, The Knot, which is the number one wedding website invested in me by the Dino last year. Carly Ronnie, the founder of The Knot, said, Kim, if you're going to own this market, you need to own the market. So double down on that user growth and retention. And then there's a million ways you can monetize this platform. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've done, but it takes capital. And so, you know, it just... That's the right strategy. And I think that's the right advice and the right strategy. Do you feel like 
your cost of acquisition is less than a, a quarter of your expected lifetime profit of a customer? Oh, yes. Right now, we're able to acquire a user for just over a dollar, whether it be them contacting vendors on our vendor platform. We just launched our e-commerce part of the platform, and the average order is already over $300. Wow. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've already been proving that, but it's just... You know, investors see 900,000 users and why aren't you producing, you know, X amount of revenue this month? And it's just, we're just not there yet. Yeah, no, you're, you're definitely not reaching the right investors. So if investors are telling you that, it's not you, it's them. You just have to find the right investor. That model of basically growing users and knowing you have a, a way to monetize it that's economically viable at scale, that's the right approach. It's more, again, making it really clear that your cost of acquisition, what it is, what the lifetime profit is going to be, what sort of return that is, how big top line this thing could be in time based on the way you're growing. If you structure it in the right way, there'll be plenty of investors that'll want to invest. You just haven't made it sounds like found the right ones. Right. Well, thank you. I thank you. Thank you for that advice. And if we can connect outside of this, I'd love you know any intros that you can help me with. I'm all about the hustle and I've met you now. And so I'm going to try to use, <laughs> utilize that relationship because that's the only way we're going to succeed. So I really do appreciate it. I don't think you're going to let Mark out of your grippy little hands. That's what I think. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you so much. Thank for your you. Help. Good okay, luck. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might want to hop on over to my other podcast, 888-BARBARA, and listen in. That's all the questions we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me, at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Audiation.